0: Welcome back to Tea Time, number seven. And let's get into it. First question, please.
1: Our first question is from Georg B. from Lethbridge, Canada. Georg, please ask Ajahn your question. Thank you. Uh, dear Ajahn, uh, thank you so much for the meta and for your very precise and wonderful instructions during this retreat. I understand that metta is the antidote to anger and hatred. Can matter protect one also from manifestations of greed and sense desires? Because what else could one possibly wish
0: for when one has developed the feeling of metta? Thank you. Good question. And I want to just reiterate something that I mention frequently, and this is a little bit outside of the standard talk on loving kindness, but for some of you, uh, and this this requires that you're you've been around the Buddhist circles for a while. There, there's one of this one of our most the deepest teachings are called dependent origination, and it's just cause and effect in the in the realm of how things work in consciousness, in the in the mind and in the body, and if we can understand the cause and effect processes of the mind and body, we can get a we can get some control. We can put in causes that give us the results that we want, and this is frequently taught to do with cutting off craving or some sort of vipassana type questions, but one of the most important areas to focus on is the fact that ignorance, our lack of understanding that which ultimately causes the arising of suffering, is conditioned. And it's fed by the five hindrances of greed, anger, agitation, sloth, and doubt. And if we can reduce the food, the avijja, the ignorance, uh, uh, go uh, diminishes, becomes weaker, and uh, what replaces it then, if we introduce new food, such as loving kindness, uh, something new starts to grow, which is vija, or knowledge, a different uh, structure comes into place. So, loving kindness deals with the m- most problematic, so anger, the Buddha says anger, is a great stain on the personality but is relatively easy to get rid of why is that? because anger intrinsically feels bad it never feels good it it has got an intrinsic quality of uh, unpleasant feeling to it and it distorts your perception of things so loving-kindness When loving kindness is present, anger, ill will, hostility, hate is not present. It doesn't have a chance to feed ignorance, to distort our understanding of the world. Now, if anger is directed towards ourselves, we misperceive ourselves, we see ourselves only partially, we see only the fault in ourselves, we do not see it in proper perspective. If we turn anger towards the world, anybody out there, any, <clears throat> anything animate or inanimate, there's a distorting feature of hostility which misrepresents reality to us, does not give us a balanced uh, representation. It emphasizes the fault, and dwells on the fault. So, if loving-kindness can reduce that, then you're going to have a much uh, clearer view of the world. You're going to have a much more balanced view of the world. You're not going to be unwisely attending to the fault. Now, the other side, the next uh, major hindrance is greed, desire, craving. Lust as well, and it its problem is that it unwisely attends to the beautiful, so it distorts reality and gives much higher um, priority to some feature of y- yourself or another or animate and inanimate objects in the world and makes you believe that it's very desirable and and very beautiful and want you want it, you would like it, you want to keep it, you want to get it. Uh, it is a lesser fault, by the way, so uh, anger is a great stain on the personality, but fairly easy to get rid of because it is unpleasant. Greed, on the other hand, is a lesser stain on the personality but hard to get rid of and why is that it's because it is accompanied sometimes not always but sometimes by pleasant feeling so sometimes craving arises with pleasant feeling for instance you anticipate that there's some you're on a diet but there is chocolate cake in the fridge and it's now 10:30 at night and you just saw an advertisement on the television for chocolate cake, and you, your heart decides that you're not on the diet anymore, and every step towards the fridge is beautiful. <laughs> accompanied by joy. The cake is accompanied by joy and pleasant feelings of taste, and then you regret what you have done. So, it it is hard to get rid of loving kindness though is why is also um is causes an, an attrition of greed so in fact if one is obsessed romantically obsessed what would you do as an antidote to this say you 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 have a committed relationship but you got your eye on somebody else how would you get out of that well one of the One of the ways is perhaps to try to um, find the faults of the the person, uh, try to make them less appetizing and so forth, rarely works. (laughs) Uh, The other one is, strangely enough, what is the uh, antidote to lustful craving? Loving kindness, (laughs) loving kindness can function. And this is one of the things... I think in the last talk I mentioned that that loving-kindness, metta, had a near enemy and a far enemy. And the near enemy of loving-kindness is that which comes in the disguise of, and that is lust, a romantic attachment, a possessive desire, is often mistaken for true loving-kindness. and. If it is the near enemy, then if you switch to loving kindness, it should push out the near enemy. It'll push out what's the far enemy of loving kindness, class, everybody remember, of course, anger or hatred is the far enemy, and the near enemy is greed, desire, lust. And so loving kindness can be an antidote to both desire and to aversion so and if you use it all the time it will weaken your whole misperception and misunderstanding about the nature of the world the nature of your life the nature of who you are this will all clear up the fog will clear up strictly through loving kindness there's only a few little instructions that are missing that loving kindness doesn't fully take care of, but it does a lot of the work of the path that will move you along. But remember, this is universal loving-kindness. Many, many religions teach partial loving-kindness. They, they strictly remain in, the, in, the, in perhaps their religious community, or they remain in the human community, but they don't radiate it to in, without any conditions attached to all beings. So this is universal loving-kindness. By the way, this, this, uh, I had a question a while back whether non-Buddhists could practice loving-kindness, and I said, of course, anybody can practice it. But some philosophies and religions in part, intrinsically exclude certain beings from inclusion in loving-kindness. So if you are committed in that particular religious idea, then you will not be able to practice universal loving-kindness. So I won't get into the theology and so forth, and which religions uh, have exclusive uh, exclusions, etc. But just take note that Buddhism is, is, uh, Buddhist loving-kindness is, Is non exclusive. There are no excluded categories.
1: This next question is from Patricia S. in Dundas, Canada. Lungpur, reflecting further on last night's Dhamma talk, I am probing my own relationship with receiving from others. It is easy for me to give, but I see now that it can be difficult for me to receive. Even when receiving the benefits of the Dhamma, I exercise the reciprocity of offering dana and feel both caring and cared for. But I do not feel power in giving this way. Instead, I feel blessed by this exchange. When you said, quote, your own loving relationship with others requires you to be the recipient sometime, I thought of all the effort I make to protect my daughter's time and get myself to medical appointments, for example can you please offer more guidance on how to be, quote, a graceful receiver and what we need to do to be able to let go of the power and be on the receiving end of a relationship?
0: Yes, uh, it's a good question. And as monks, uh, we're put in the position of having to become graceful receivers. Many of the people who come to become monks are not from the from the begging class or the bottom of the social barrel at all. Sometimes they're from good families. At the time of the Buddha, many of them came from royalty. And suddenly they were in this position where they were not to provide for themselves. And they were not to just uh, live off uh, the, the largesse, the generosity of their families, but they were to be walking through the streets barefoot with a bowl and people from all different levels of society were able to contribute to their food, including the lowest caste. So Buddhism is a, will cause some ripples in society because it refused to concern itself. Didn't believe in the caste structure. Anybody who came in to become a monk was just given seniority in terms of when they were ordained and same for women. And they were, they were recipients of generosity, and teachers of, uh, of people from all different levels of society. So they abolished that idea. And this is a beautiful thing: is that uh, everybody should have the opportunity to practice generosity, and you can start also with uh, with children very young, and you'll see in in children some. Get the idea very early, even uh two and a two two to three years old uh you can ask them sometimes to if they have a cookie in their hand if they would like to offer you a bite <laughs> or can can I have a cookie too and some of them are very eager to to do this and offer this to this gigantic face in front of them the you remember being a tiny child that adults are immense they're they're twelve feet tall and their heads are their heads alone are two feet tall, you know? So to feed this giant um, being before you, with a huge mouth, a chunk of your cookie is quite a, quite a thrilling experience. Some children will very happily do this and they, they're delighted. At, at the age of three, the, the, the parami, the virtue of generosity can be experienced that's it's available almost across the spectrum, even animals can practice generosity, they will share things and so a child and they they should be introduced to generosity they should they should receive and and how they're delighted with gifts, and then they should be taught, i you can give also, and you can enjoy giving so this is this is where it all should start, but uh. Many people are would rather be the, the giver than the receiver. Um, and there is a saying, I think, uh, it is better to give than to receive. <laughs> As if everybody is eager to receive, but actually, no, everybody is not. It might be better sometimes to receive than to give. You need to be an elegant receiver. You need to be a good guest at a dinner and eat lots. <laughs> Ask for seconds, please. The The host... What doesn't want you to there this is one of the things that a monk must never do if you have received an invitation to a meal you are not to eat before that this is a very dumb thing to show up for the meal full (laughs) don't show up hungry show your appreciation by eating Uh, and so and being comfortable with this, too. You know, it's... it's. We have to take turns in this sport, this dance of society. You know, like baseball teams. Some, one side is up to bat and the other side is out in the field and then they change positions. The other guy gets up to bat and the other guy goes out to the field. So this is how it works in, in life. Sometimes you offer the dinner, sometimes you receive the dinner. And this is... You must practice this back and forth and being not uh, understanding that people need the opportunity to share to, to practice generosity it it, it, uh, it uh, increases their well-being in life if they can understand this, <clears throat> and those who are oh, they hate this people in need and so forth they, why don't they get a job and all this kind of stuff they are missing a very substantial part of life and they need to um, be empowered to uh, offer things. There's a story uh, that a Vietnamese monk told me years ago in Thailand. He was talking about the Vietnam War. This monk uh, was, a, was ordained when he was eight years old he, as a novice. He became a novice at eight. Monks, uh, you can't be, be fully ordained as a monk until you're 20 you can be a novice as early as eight years old. So he was in the robes at eight. And he, also his four brothers as well, (laughs) all five. And he, as the Vietnam War progressed, uh, eventually they decided that he should try to get out and they put him on a boat when he was about 19 years old and hopefully to get to the US and away from the danger of it. He was a Theravada monk in Vietnam. So... He told me a story that as the, as the war went on, uh, the Americans came in and tried to, uh, distribute, uh, school books and various kinds of, uh, uh, food and stuff to villages because it was, it was the the economy was very bad during the war. And this might be a lesson for, for now too. this, the economy for some people during this pandemic is very, very bad. They came in and tried to distribute this, but what happened was that every time they brought these goods in, including school books and everything, it went into the black market. The the village headman and so forth took the stuff and, and tried to make money out of it. So it never got distributed. So they, they were frustrated. They were trying to do charity and it was getting misplaced. And they couldn't cure the problem. So they decided, why don't we ask the monks if they can figure out what to do? And they said, you should first start to send monks to that village on alms round. So that they, the villagers, get a, remember what it is to give rather than to receive. And then you will, they will be reminded of the, this reciprocal generosity. So they sent monks through. And then after a while, then when they put the, the donations in, the, the school books and so forth, they became distributed. They remembered instead of just taking it all for yourself and that there is this other thing, this beauty of distribution and generosity. So one of the functions of the monk going on alms round and appearing as, as a recipient is to remind the entire society. And in some ways we need this reminder. Um Mother Teresa in India was asked uh, whether she planned to, you know, uh, abolish poverty in India or or heal everybody and she said, "No, then um, I would make a liar out of Jesus who said the poor shall always be with you." <laughs> so when you see people in poverty, that's a sign. That's a sign of the opportunity for giving and that that no no person is physically independent, you can only be emotionally well and independent, but physically you rely on the knowledges and skills and the productions of everybody else so you're entwined in a huge interdependent system so this is very very important to understand the that it flows both ways and you should be a a very genteel and elegant actor in either role both as the giver and as the receiver back and forth back and forth
1: our next question is from anonymous in syracusa italy when i do meta meditation the only methods i've learned are ones using words however i find using words to be too much mental agitation when the mind is calm is there a way to cultivate metta without words?
0: Yes. When I when I first read that question just before this session I uh immediately thought of some uh music by Mendelssohn called Songs Without Words. A nice title, Songs Without Words. And The song is there, but the words are not. And of course you you have this instrumental kind of music as well. Words are only one way of generating loving kindness. In fact, music itself is a possible way to generate the feeling. And art, like great paintings, uh, I suppose even great movies, uh, great passages from poetry, great theater, um, all kinds of things move the heart and it, that's all that matters. There's, there's 15 ways to start a fire, 12, what is it? 13 ways to look at a blackbird. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, read the poem, look it up on Google, <laughs> Google it, 13 ways to, to look at a blackbird. And at least 13 ways to initiate loving kindness and words don't have to be part of it sometimes it's the just the breeze hitting your face or just uh watching uh geese uh raising a family you know we we're on in the in the wilderness here and every spring geese and ducks and birds come from thousands of miles away, land here and raise in very devoted parents. They raise these little chicks, and they 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 protect them and feed them and make sure that they're well and so forth. The, the, the animals can even do this. It's very very beautiful to watch this interaction. Usually in the spring, also uh, a deer appears near my uh, my cottage. Uh, with her new offspring, and sometimes uh, she has the, it right in front of the uh, the window. She, she must feel safe here. She's she's had her child, her baby, the fawn, on several occasions, right while I'm looking out the window. <laughs> and then they hang around and and uh, and grow up around my ca- my cabin and uh it's very moving to watch them. She has to put up with a lot. she has to keep her eye out, and they're just typical kids you know they they're not paying attention to anything and Any time they feel hungry, they just start n- nursing <laughs> so all kinds of opportunities for triggering this this feeling of profound goodwill and you you hope they're safe because they're they they want to live. <laughs> And that's that's the essence of loving kindness, is that the wish for well being and safety. Yeah.
1: Our next question is from Mudita in Kamloops, Canada. Ajahn, for loving kindness to remain genuine, does it require lots of vulnerability and forgiveness for oneself and others? Thank you. Very grateful for all this yummy food for the heart.
0: Yes. Uh, it it's not that it requires it, it. It it is very liberal. Once you get the feeling, there's no need to ask for forgiveness. You're forgiven. Everybody's forgiven. You're forgiven. They're forgiven. Everybody's forgiven. You don't you don't have anything to forgive anymore. So this is the this is true. Loving kindness is that you don't feel like anybody has to for, be forgiven. There, they it, it recognizes that people do these things because they don't know any better, and animals too, like dogs, they'll bite you and bark at you and everything because that's, they don't know any better. Notice though that, you know, is, if you see a dog and uh, they don't, you have a relationship with that dog but they, they haven't recognized you yet. They'll, they'll bark furiously, and, and then soon, they, suddenly they, you, they hear your voice, and they instantly stop, and they wag their tail. So they, oh, it's a friend. So you, you see that transition from non-understanding to understanding, the transition to, from non-recognition to recognition. And uh, people who are around dogs a lot um, will, will know that about the nature of the dog. The dog instantly... Recognize his friend, and so you're not going to say, "But you barked at me before. I cannot forgive that." <laughs> now the dog wants to sit in your lap. He wants to fetch and he play games. And the, 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 are you going to hold it against him that he barked because he didn't recognize you? No. So this is the the nature of of uh, all beings. They, if they're aggressive and and harmful. It's usually because they haven't encountered Dhamma. And uh, they, how can you expect them to be any other way? I mean, uh, they don't know any better. So, and you look back on your own history, you don't know. You, you didn't have the skills, you, you said the wrong thing, you did the wrong thing. It was only wrong because you you had no skills. So once you have the skills, don't look back. It's a very good lesson in life. Don't Look back.
1: (laughs) Ajahn, our next question is from Cindy B. in Diamond Mountain, United States. Ajahn, thank you for your kind and profound teachings of the Buddhist path from a monk's view, in contrast to a layperson's teachings. Last tea talk, you spoke about how one should no longer feel responsible or hold guilt or remorse for past ignorance and unskillful actions because one is no longer that person. One has moved on and thus learned from one's mistakes, wrongdoings, and so forth. But if one takes this stance and then continues to make the same unskillful actions, mistakes, wrong deeds, etc., despite, quote, knowing better, where is the learning in that? Has one really become a different person I see this too often in myself and others where I have vowed to be or do differently, but I fall into doing the same, making the same mistakes. Is this basically a matter of failed right effort with the attitude of if at first you don't succeed, try, try again? Could it be attachment and clinging to old patterns of ignorance from earlier life or previous lives that are so ingrained they are hard to break?
0: So this question ties in very nicely with the previous question, which was roughly along the same lines about ha- about having done unskillful things in the past. Should, how can you just let yourself off the hook? Uh, no guilt, no remorse. This is very confused in uh, this society too. This is one of the things that they expect from a prisoner is to express remorse for the crime in the prison. And if you happen to be Buddhist, you think, well, you know, you want me to go against <laughs> Buddhism? Like, I, I, I have been to the prison and talked to prisoners. Um, the, the issue is not about remorse and guilt. It's not good for you. Remorse and guilt often make you feel very bad. And one of the reasons why people act out antisocially or out of frustration, is because they don't feel well. They're feeling bad, and they're riddled with guilt and remorse. It's not a very constructive thing. And often you will even repeat the kind of unskillful behavior because you're you're feeling bad and full of guilt. (laughs) And often... So there are also people who have guilt, they they themselves have been abused have been mistreated and they, they they wonder if they they somehow provoked it and they that they were responsible for having the atrocity committed on them <laughs> uh, so this is you can see that it's a very very unskillful and we try to talk a person like that out of it saying you had nothing to do with it you are innocent <laughs> You have nothing to do with it. So, what what should we do, though? Should we be just a, a, an, a conscienceless sociopath and wander through life committing bad things and then not caring? No, it is not that way. Regarding the past, there's nothing you can do about it. It's gone. Regarding the present and the future, you should have two things that are very strongly developed. Hiri and Otapa. <laughs> these these are said to be the guardians of the world. When Hiri Otapa, and I will define it, these are the, that's the Pali term, Hiri Otapa, when it is absent <clears throat> in a society, the entire society becomes dreadful, corrupt, and violent. And when it's present, the society is, is a beautiful thing to live in. So look around the world where corruption is rampant, where there is no sense of shame or fear. No, no, they, people have no sense of shame and they have no sense that there is a higher uh, type of life which you should attempt to live up to. And that society uh, spins down, it goes down, down, down. Where hiri otapa, fear and shame uh, are present, that society uh, becomes more and more beautiful to live in. Now what is this fear? I, you know, I'm telling you that you shouldn't have any fear because of loving kindness. You won't need fear if you have loving-kindness. The fear is for your own well-being. You should be afraid to go too close to the edge. You know, Uh, you see people. They go to visit the Grand Canyon or some place in the wilderness or next to a waterfall and they walk right up to the edge. And, well, sure, okay, they may have no fear of heights, but you'd be stupid to walk up to the edge because you don't know how su- well-supported the rock is there, or the edges, it might be undercut. You don't, if you've got a little sense here, you don't go to the edge there. It may not be solid. It's not about your fear of heights or that you have no fear of heights or that you're confident in your balance and, or even your curious you don't go there because it can give way it just disappear down the cliff (laughs) you don't do that because you're sane and you care about yourself and there's a lot of people out there in the wilderness (laughs) doing things climbing cliffs and stuff without ropes who don't care enough about themselves there is a time to have fear for your safety you don't do things that endanger you recklessly so that's the that's what you establish your life on not about the past it's about the present so the fear for your own well-being and safety means that you don't do unskillful things motivated by anger and greed and and crude kind of motivations you don't do that Because you care about yourself, and you care about your future. And the other thing is called shame, but it's not being ashamed of anything. It's having a concern for the opinion of the wise. And let's hope you have a sense that there are wise beings in the world. There there are, there are all kinds of philosophies of life. There are all kinds of attitudes towards life, and some people think that nobody knows anything. It's all just a a bunch of opinions. That's an unskillful way to live. There are people with wisdom who understand the inner workings of humans. And if you listen to them, you will get direct evidence that they know what what works. Because you will start to feel differently. You will discover... New circuits that light up and are self confirming they it feels good it feels right it helps you navigate the world as a just and and a positive being and you will you get the benefits yourself and it benefits others around you so this is this is the sense of a, a strong concern for the opinion of the wise and a A great concern for your own well-being and non-injury and non-harm so when you do unskillful things you lapse you you make you think oh i won't do that again and then you lapse it's because you don't have enough concern for yourself if you really cared about yourself and this is what loving kindness does it makes you care about yourself you won't do that again you will break bad habits old habits, old structures. And you will, you will continue to practice. So you, you use the phrase, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. If you don't have enough concern for yourself, you won't try, try again. But if you do have concern for yourself, you will try and try again until you get it. So this is, this is all entwined with loving-kindness, so a concern for your own well-being is natural loving-kindness, and a reverence and high regard for the opinion of the wise. By the way, on the other, other side of this opinion of the wise is the opinion of the foolish. Now, humans tend to be concerned with everybody's opinion. They're self-conscious and concerned, and they, they want to appear this way and that way to everybody, including fools. Well, here's the thing. When you have a high concern for the opinion of the wise, you have no concern for the opinion of the foolish. And that means that sometimes you're going to go against the stream. You're not going along where the crowd's going. You're going to be going in another direction because you do not respect foolish opinions and you will not go along with them and that's part of the this uh concern for the opinion of the wise and why, and why it's concerned for a particular type of person and not no concern for another type of person so this is this is the two agents which you cultivate and you dispense with guilt and remorse regarding the past and you replace that with a wholesome concern for your own safety and well-being in the present and the future, and, a, and you get this concern by information, good information given to you by wise people. And you operate on those two activities, and the past is gone.
1: Our next question is from Anonymous in Calgary, Canada. Dear Ajahn, I know what it feels like to have a mind of loving-kindness. It's not there at the moment. I'm really wanting to have a mind of loving-kindness, and that wanting, craving, greed is likely an impediment to developing metta, but I'm having a hard time letting go of that craving. And the more I listen to your Dhamma talks, the stronger my craving grows. Do you have any suggestions?
0: Yes, I, I want to change the word craving to aspiration. And and instead of thinking it's a bad thing to be craving to have loving kindness, I I congratulate you for having a strong aspiration to have loving kindness. And this is something you need. And it's called right effort, a very strong commitment, uh, chanda, a very strong arousal of determination and energy to accomplish this good thing. And to get this beautiful result of loving kindness, so yes, you should be very determined, and and it's not it's not interfering with the result; it's moving you to find out how to do this, how to bring this into your into your life. And you know, as I say, uh, you get to use all kinds of different methods. Uh, you could so one thing is you're listening right now to the voice of another who is attempting to persuade you and induce you into this, this goodwill and to make it a beautiful uh, thing that you can have too. So this is one way to do it, is listen to the voice of another. And then I, I also said, you know, sometimes animals can teach you this, you know. Uh, go to the Go to the uh, to the dog pound and, and take them for a walk at least. You know, pet them. You might not have have the opportunity to to bring them home and so forth. But there's all kinds of interactions you can have. Well, maybe during the pandemic, it may not be the best thing to go to the pound. But uh, as soon as it's over, uh, you can go out and uh, interact and and with living beings in a in a loving way. And as I say, use other things like music that brings you into this, movies that bring you into this, novels that bring you into it, fact, uh, you know, factual books that bring you into it, poetry that bring you into it, images, paintings, everything, nature, visits to the monastery, um, uh, at least uh, virtual visits to the monastery. <laughs> And so, use every method you can to help you along and feel that, uh, by, that Buddhism, Buddhism requires great energy and determination and to achieve these things. And it's not... you don't start off with desirelessness. That's... you end with desirelessness because you got what you were looking for. But you need strong determination and wholesome aspiration to develop this. So, congratulations.
1: (laughs) Our next question is from Losu B. from Guadalajara, Mexico. Ajahn, in a previous tea time, you said that the Buddha said that if one doesn't achieve Nibbana, one will be reborn in the higher heavens. How does one not fail to achieve Nibbana? Through loving-kindness and also pertaining the loving-kindness nimitta, how does one progress until achieving jhana through loving-kindness?
0: It's possible that if you do not manage to get in this life to nibbana, and uh, it's not a given that you will, uh, it's a process, uh, it's a very fortunate result of, of very careful practices, but if we fail and we have moved along, at least we will have the reward of loving-kindness. And loving-kindness is more or less the contents of the higher heavens. The, the higher heavens are a, a state of heart which you move into. And it wouldn't be much of a heaven if, if it wasn't accompanied by this fullness of, of heart, love, in fact. So, that's the, that's the second prize, you know, like, Nibbana is the first prize, but the second prize is a, a, a great deal of time in uh, soaked in loving-kindness in the higher dimensions of consciousness. <laughs> so, how do we not fail to attain Nibbana? How do we not fail to attain Nibbana? We have to understand the teachings of the Buddha. We have to understand primarily right view. Uh, if you don't have right view, everything that follows will not be right. There's a little word be, in so the eightfold path um, has a little each each factor of the eightfold path, each of the eight factors, has a word in front of it, Sama, which means right. And so If you don't understand right view then you won't have right intention, right uh, speech, right action, right livelihood. You won't have right uh, effort, right mindfulness, and right samadhi. You won't have those things. You will be having been misinformed at the beginning with the wrong view, then the other things won't follow. So the first thing is to really investigate right view. And Where can you get information about this? On Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel. He will go into every factor of the Eightfold Path including Right View extensively so that you have all of these things laid out so that you will have a much better chance of arriving at the ultimate goal the ultimate good of Nirvana and um, and at if if you miss slightly, then you will arrive in the uh, higher heavens.
1: <laughs> Our next question is from Nang from Palmerston North, New Zealand. Sadhu Ajahn, I am supporting a friend who is in the middle of her chemotherapy treatment after a double mastectomy for breast cancer. Her bodily reactions to the chemo have been severe including breathlessness, tingling sensations throughout the body that can at times result in body shaking, akin to that experienced by drug addicts, tension spasms in the back of the head, down the neck, to the shoulders, and discomfort from lymphedema. We are both regular meditators, though our main focus had been breath meditation. Ajahn, can you please suggest how she can ease herself into relaxed safety, when confronted with this overwhelming bodily discomfort before metta meditation. Also, please explain how metta can help her alleviate her bodily suffering. Thank you, Ajahn. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu.
0: Yes, I've been talking about this quite a bit. This is the condition we, we really need to practice our loving kindness because uh, this kind of situation comes to us all one way or the other. And uh, it's just tremendously helpful to have something clear that you, you know, is the right thing to do. It's like training for emergencies ahead of time. If you're in New Zealand, you, you already know what happens when the earth starts shaking, you know what to do, right? Tsunamis and earthquakes and where to go in the building and all this kind of stuff. But when the, when things start shaking in your life, quite often, you don't know what to do. Well, you go to the doctor, I suppose, but there's no advice about how to feel about this. And that is why you should go to Ajahn Sona's YouTube channel and watch two videos called How the Wise See Cancer. <laughs> and we, with the very narrator who is reading these questions, I am interviewing Piyadasi, who also had cancer and is in the monastery and has gone through all this. I I wanted to really focus on this because this is one of the most pervasive and fearful illnesses on the planet. You know, this, the coronavirus is, is killing off lots of people, but nothing like cancer, the the cancer rates and heart, heart attacks and cancer are much higher, even at the peak of the pandemic. And this, this isn't going to end when the vaccine comes out, (laughs) this is going to continue and there's a substantial chances of getting some form of cancer. And we really need that loving kindness, and we need it when we're really sick and not well. But you need good advice, so uh, go play the those videos of the talks on on how to wisely cancer, and um, and then listen to advice about how to cultivate loving kindness. Now, if you're very very ill, you got the chemo and all this stuff. It makes you just it can make you terribly nauseous and all these things and a lot of things are not available. You're not going to be sitting in a, in a meditation hall, but maybe just lying on your back in a, in a a bed and maybe with the chemo, you know, in you as well. So you're going to have to listen to the voice of another, perhaps, um, some chanting occasionally, uh music that reminds you uh that brings you into another space as well but you really have to allow the mind to focus on something else than the nausea and the pain you strongly focus on this and you might find that you strongly diminishes the pain and the nausea as well so those are those are possibilities and uh you you depending on the depth of your pain and dizziness and so forth, it will be available to various people. And, and if you can get the voice of another very confidently leading you into this loving kindness, very soothing and so forth, you might find that amazingly it subsides. Yes.
1: Our next question is from Tissa and Molly in Chilliwack, Canada. Hello, Ajahn Sona. We are very fortunate to be able to access your Dhamma teachings virtually, especially during this time of universal chaos. We feel isolated, yet every moment see the wonderful benefits of togetherness. We feel so grateful to all essential workers, value ever so much our connection to family and friends. Can you please talk about gratitude from a Buddhist perspective? How gratitude connects to mindfulness and loving kindness. With much gratitude to you, Ajahn Sona, and your team for these teachings.
0: Yeah, gratitude is the mark that you actually got something. Every you know, there's an interesting story I heard from a a retreat given in in one of the prisons in India, and uh, the Guenka. Uh, meditators the vipassana goenka meditators decided to give a retreat in one of the biggest prisons now this prison has 10,000 prisoners <laughs> and i th- let your imagination run wild what what a in, an indian prison is like it's not no prison is very nice maybe in norway <laughs> sweden the prisons are kind of nice but uh, uh by the time you get to india with 10,000 prisoners It could be quite an experience. Anyway, the Gwenka people went into this prison to offer a Vipassana, a 10 day Vipassana course in this. And this is with um, people who are in there for for murder and uh, aggravated assault and all kinds of heavy duty criminals. And uh, the warden actually happened to be a woman. And uh, she was she wanted to have guards in there, et cetera, with weapons, and it was. they had a big courtyard. And they said, no, uh, we won't need them. And they sol- they allowed the prisoners to decide themselves, well, do you want to come to the 10-day retreat? Some of them had very naive ideas. They thought it would be, you know, quite easy to get out of their cells and everything. I think they started off with several hundred, but uh, it turns out that... The, an Indian prison cell is better than a Vipassana retreat. Sometimes, you know? <laughs> it's a it's a hard it's a hard number to do. <laughs> You're face to face, no entertainment, nothing. They thought they would. They're having a like going into a resort. No, <laughs> it's it's very austere and very demanding, and you have to face yourself. And some of these guys had never done anything like this before. So there was an attrition of prisoners, but a hundred or one hundred and fifty, whatever remained and managed to get right through. And when they came out, they were, they were literally hugging the guards and the guards were hugging them and there was tears. And they, some of them had an incredibly transformative experience, but the, the warden who was also, this woman was also a meditator. And then she wanted to have an interview with each of these prisoners who had completed the course. A very clever woman, very wise, very cagey. You know, and you don't get to be the warden of a (laughs) big penitentiary without being very uh, discerning about human nature. When they came into their office, she said, "There, there are two types here. And I can tell you the authentic one and the inauthentic one. Because some of these prisoners wanted to, you know... They have done this thing, and they're a new person. And please let me out. <laughs> I'll take something off my sentence, because I'm, I'm. I shall not do bad things again. I, I, I saw this, and I, I feel this, and I. She's, she said that. On, I don't believe. But the one who comes in here and says, "I am so grateful. I'm so grateful that this was." brought into my life. I would never have imagined to do this. That one is authentic. The one who just expresses gratitude instead of some boasting about how much they understand and all this kind of stuff. Gratitude tells me they got something and they want to express that they got something. So this is the value of gratitude. You don't Express gratitude unless you got something. And uh, so this is uh, this is I, I get this at the monastery too, with people come and stay, and then they they just tell me thank you, for, you know, just grateful for the experience, the and and how much it helps. And others want to walk in and tell me how brilliant they are and all. That. <laughs> so uh, you know, I, I I wouldn't discount the the their accounts of their spiritual experience, but mostly what I want to hear is that that something, something good has really happened to them and they feel, you know, this wouldn't have happened if the Buddha had not decided to teach and, and if he hadn't organized a huge bunch of people who dedicate their whole life to this and then they pass it to the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, 2,500 years and it's all over the planet and we're still doing it. And sometimes we have to start out in broken down shacks on the edge of rivers with lovely Sri Lankan families that come all the way up there to offer me food like Tissa and Mali and their children. Yes, and uh, so 25 years ago this is. So this is a, a relationship that goes on and we share the wor- with the world. And so now we're sharing with thousands of people who are also participating in this. And I hope that you, in the end, feel grateful. And it, by the way, we wanna, there's a whole bunch of people in the background here with earphones on and headphones and microphones and computers and all of this kind of stuff and filming things and moving things around. And that's how it happens. It's not just it's me talking to you. It's just a whole bunch of people. And there's a monastery here, which required thousands of people to contribute to, to actually get this built. So gratitude is a beautiful, beautiful thing and the mark of of authenticity